Welcome to Common Home Conversations Pathway to 2022, a series by the Planetary Podcast, part of the Civil Society Celebration and Declaration for Stockholm Plus 50, a half century later after the historic 1972 UN Conference on the Human Environment. In Common Home Conversations, you will hear high-level political and public figures, academics, and influential activists discuss what should be the content of the high-level declaration foreseen for 2022. Our planet faces a myriad of catastrophic environmental challenges, from climate change to widespread biodiversity loss to desertification. The science is clear. The state of our global environment is deteriorating at an unprecedented rate, highlighting the need for fundamental transformative changes across our legal, economic, social, political, and technological spheres. Thus, there is an urgent need to reach a common ground within civil society and around it build a civil society declaration with the potential to be the needed starting point for a paradigm shift towards a safe and sustainable future for our global community. Common Home Conversations is the place to discuss the challenges posed by climate change, as well as possible solutions to help create a stabilized Earth and ensure that the Civil Society 2022 Declaration can be a true game changer. Now, here is your host, founder, and CEO of the Planetary Press, Kimberly White. Hello, and welcome back to Common Home Conversations. Today, we're joined by Inga Ralph, co-founder and executive director of Global Choices. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. So can you tell us about your work with Global Choices? Always happy to talk about Global Choices. (laughs) About four years ago, when my co-founder Sally Rani and I took a look at the climate arena, just to say also that my background is in corporate strategy and in restructuring. And so we took that lens to the climate arena. And we realized that although there's a fantastic amount of really good stuff being done, you know, trees being planted and plastics taken out the ocean and phenomenal innovation, that there was a massive gap when you look at the systems and a huge gap in recognizing how important the Arctic and Antarctic are to the whole of climate generally. You know, they are indispensable cooling systems for the whole planet and had become really more the purview of the scientists. And we were realizing more and more, looking at the science, just how much impact that was going to have on the whole of the globe and particularly on the most marginalized people. And so we felt that that was something that we wanted to focus on. And we also decided we wanted to do it differently. We wanted to be much more collaborative. We wanted to build an organization that built on feminine values, that was intergenerational, and that really brought head and heart together. So we wanted consciousness and our recognition that we were so dependent on our planet to be central to what we were doing. And so that's really how we set up Global Choices. And the priority for Global Choices really is to raise the Arctic ice crisis to the top of the global agenda and to do it in an intergenerational way and to have the Arctic used as a bellwether. I mean, given that the Arctic is now warming at about three times faster than anywhere else on the planet, it's such a bellwether for what we have to do in terms of emissions cuts. And to correlate what's happening there with how deep and how fast we have to make emissions cuts. 
And then the other piece of it is really to protect the central Arctic Ocean, what we call an ice shield, from further harm. So currently the Arctic is not considered part of our global commons. The issue has been a bit of a point of contention as some countries agree that the central Arctic Ocean qualifies as a global common, while others consider it international waters, with ambitions of future international shipping routes through that region. Now, Global Choices has proposed a moratorium to protect the Central Arctic Ocean ice shield. Could you please tell us more about this and what this moratorium could do? Yes, we felt very much that we needed to reframe the Arctic. I mean, the Arctic has been a a wonderful space in many ways when it's all frozen and has been very peaceably governed by the contiguous states. But now that it's melting, clearly there is much more contention for the spoils of the Arctic. And when you reflect on how important it is in terms of global climate stability, I mean, it is the indispensable cooling system for the whole globe. And when you reflect on the impacts of the loss of that Arctic, it makes so much sense to reframe it as a global commons, because it is as important as the atmosphere, as the oceans. And you could argue that, yes, of course, Sami would be affected by the loss of the Arctic, but actually a Samoan would be even more affected because as the Greenland ice sheets melt and then we change the climate and the circulatory patterns down to the Antarctica and we start having ice melt from the Antarctic and sea level rise, those islands, the small island states, the Caribbean states, coastal regions will be massively affected. I mean, the Samoans will be underwater. So, you know, we're seeing a reframing and we're also seeing that increasingly people are seeing themselves as global citizens and taking global responsibility for these systems. And I think that's a very welcome development and we would like to foster that. So technically, it may not be considered global commons, but certainly it has every right to be so and we will fight for that. And it also sits very comfortably with the 30 by 30 movement, which is to protect these areas. And our take on it is to have a 10-year moratorium rather than saying, let's try and make this a permanent thing. Ideally, of course, we want to make it permanent, but we feel the geopolitics would probably not allow for that at this point, whereas we do think there is a shot at a 10-year moratorium based on the precautionary principle. There is a lot of value add to say we have to allow policy to catch up. We need to allow science to catch up because there is so much which we're only just discovering. And that we need to foster and model this relationship of a global commons and the global citizen. And we think that the Arctic is a wonderful place in which you can model that. I agree. And I think there is a growing awareness and people are really embracing the idea of global citizenship. And I think it's important that we recognize the transboundary impacts of our actions, especially from the world's top emitters like the United States. Our actions in one area of the world don't just have local effects. Those actions can impact people on the other side of the world. And I think people are starting to finally get to that realization. Absolutely. I agree with you. And I I don't think, I mean, I, I like polar bears and penguins as much as anyone, but this is not about polar bears and penguins, although it will help them. But It's really a recognition that, you know, every tonne of carbon emitted melts three meters square of Arctic sea ice. And then add to that the recognition that this is irrecoverable in our lifetime. Of all the systems we have, the Arctic ice cannot be recovered. 
And our strat plan is you can't plant ice. Once it's gone, it pretty much is gone. And that, I think, is a very stark fact that we have to get to grips with. Absolutely. And I can say for me, the Arctic is near and dear to my heart. I used to live in Alaska, so I've been able to watch how the climate is warming in the region that I love so much. Now, in addition to the issue with sea ice, there is another emerging area of concern for the Arctic, and that's permafrost. The frozen ground spanning vast swaths of the Arctic region is estimated to hold around 1.5 trillion metric tons of carbon. As global temperatures rise, it increases the risk of the permafrost thawing and releasing massive stores of ancient carbon into our atmosphere. The emissions from permafrost thaw could be on par with the emissions from large greenhouse gas emitters, such as the United States, by the end of the century. However, this is largely left out of global climate negotiations. Given your expertise, how can we catalyze the political and financial momentum needed to address this? You know, it is such a critical area, and it's kind of mind-boggling that it hasn't been factored into the climate models until relatively recently. I mean, the permafrost emissions are shorter-lived, but they are very potent. It's, to be honest, not an area that we work directly with. We are very conscious of it in relation to trying to keep to under 1.5. But we're not working really on land-based systems. We're working very much on the central Arctic Ocean, which is an area beyond national jurisdiction. That said, I'm very heartened to hear that there's $40 million fund that's just been set up and the Woodwell Center will be managing it and with quite a few of the Alaskan scientists too to look at pathways to try and mitigate the damage Sadly, I think, of course, the war in Ukraine and the alienation of Russia, and given that so much of that permafrost sits in Russian tundra, uh, is going to make it much, much more difficult. So I think they are being realistic from what I can see from their early reports, is that it's not going to be something that you're going to be able to solve necessarily, but you're going to have to look at the mitigation, um, things like relocation. And also, I think there is an opportunity to start looking at things like the zombie fires. You know, there are some very interesting fire suppressants being developed, which are biofire suppressant versus chemical fire suppressants. And, you know, can we put those to good use to actually stop some of the zombie fires, which, of course, then add further to the carbon emissions? So, as I say, we're not directly dealing with it, but I am glad that it is now getting some real attention. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned the zombie fires. Can you elaborate more on that? The zombie fires are arising from methane emissions, and then they catch fire and, of course, set fire to the forests. Particularly, we've watched a lot of that happen over the last two years in the Russian archipelago, in the Russian tundras. So I think if we can start mitigating that or preventing them from arising, because they're underground fires, um, which then erupt. But I think there are other fires that we also need to think of in relation to the Arctic, which we don't. I mean, it's the fire and ice principle. The fires in Australia are now being linked to the Arctic. And the fires in the States, for instance, are being linked to droughts caused by this huge variability of our climate system. So as the polar vortex, which was a very stable system, becomes unstable and meanders, you start having these very erratic climate patterns. So you suddenly start having droughts for long periods of time. You have floods, as we saw in Germany and Belgium. 
you start having things like the Texas Big Freeze, which of course was, I think, one of the most expensive insurance incidents in the States. Our Beast from the East, which we called here in the UK, massive freezing. So this variability, and of course, the droughts then just make it so vulnerable for fires to spread, as do the winds. I mean, there's some very interesting changes in wind patterns and extreme winds, which all you need are those two things to coincide, and then you've got these uncontrolled fires. So this is the whole point of it, is to see these systems as a whole and to understand the interdependence and the interconnectedness of them. And that's really one of the things that we keep trying to emphasize. Everything is interconnected. Now, throughout your career, you have worked to engage and empower women across the business sector and peace and security. And as you mentioned earlier, Global Choices is female-led and mentor a network of young female climate leaders, the Arctic Angels. Globally, women are disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis. However, women are one of the most powerful change agents and are often overlooked by society. How can advancing gender equality and empowering women help in the fight against the climate crisis? And just to add to this question, can you please tell us a little bit more about your Arctic Angels program? Always thrilled to do that because they are so inspiring. As I said, we wanted this to be an intergenerational response. We also have observed, and if you go way back, for instance, to the Paris Agreement, how important it was when you had leaders like Christiane Figueres, Mary Robinson, women who decided that every committee had to have equal representation. And I do believe that was really influential in helping get that across the line. And, you know, I've spoken, had the great joy of speaking a number of times with Christiana, and it is about a willingness to sort of set self aside and to really work for the common good. And that, I think, is the energy that we feel is the energy that will get us over the line in terms of climate. So collaboration, empathy, compassion, humility. There is a whole Pulitzer Prize-winning book called The Athena Doctrine, which uh, Gersma and D'Antonio wrote, which says that you know, it comes to the conclusion that the feminine is the operating system of the 21st century. And by feminine, we mean not just female. We mean the feminine in men too. And we're seeing this leadership coming to the fore in men particularly men who had daughters, interestingly enough, who suddenly realized, oh, maybe this isn't right that our daughters don't get equal value. And so it is, as I say, this humility to change and less ego involved, but also a determination to make it better for everyone and for the whole. And I've seen this very visibly in peace building too. You know, you sit around a peace negotiation table and the women want to resolve it for everybody because they want to get back to normal. And the men are still fighting to have the bits that they were fighting for in the first place. So I do think it's terribly, terribly important. Inclusion is really important too. And, you know, the other piece of this is about wisdom. And wisdom, of course, Sophia is a feminine energy. And Wisdom is present, and I'm, we're seeing this so strongly in the next generation. And at different, you know, every age, wisdom is present. And so that's one of the things we're seeing with Arctic Angels. It's a very juried group, and they are amazing. And so we're loving this intergenerational exchange because we're learning as much from them as they might be learning from us. And what we do is we mentor them, 
as best we can <laughs> and try and avoid um, them making the same mistakes as we've made, but more particularly also providing real leadership training. So for instance, they're about to embark on a wonderful five-week training course on leadership, which really also encourages consciousness and this notion of oneness, but also practical training, understanding getting briefs, toolkits on the Arctic, the cryosphere, and the science behind the Arctic and why the global commons is so important. But it is something even greater than this, and it comes from indigenous wisdom, and that is to take a view that we aren't just working for the now or for our present generation. We have to take the long view. And I can guarantee you, wherever these young women find themselves, they are making the sort of difference that we need in the world. And we're seeing it, for instance, with Divya in India. She's now working at the Asia Development Bank. And that voice influences how people see things. And it's this new seeing that we're bringing. And so we, we try and then provide platforms. So we've just had Alexandria speak at NATO. We have 33 um, speaking slots at COP showcasing, whether it's COP or UN meetings at central headquarters or places where their voices need to be showcased and need to be heard and put in front of policymakers. So we enable that, which is often something that is very hard for young people to do and to get into. And it's remarkable how receptive leaders can be when you have a well-informed, articulate young woman speaking from the heart. So you have, and you might say, well, you know, how striking it is to have somebody from Uganda, Evelyn, who's one of our Arctic Angels, stand up and say, this is not theory. We're already feeling the impact of the loss of the Arctic in Uganda. We're already feeling the drought. We're already feeling the floods. Please do something. It's up to you who are policymakers to make the right choices. That is incredibly powerful. And just thank you to Global Choices and to all of your Arctic Angels for the work you've been doing to help move the needle on this and to raise awareness. It will be really exciting to see where all of your Arctic Angels go and the impact that they're going to have, because I know they're going to go do great things for our planet and for our global community. Thank you. I might also add that, you know, of course, the Global Choices Arctic Angels are female, but we are widening the net to build an Arctic ice force because there are so many who want to participate now and add their voice. So we're just about to launch that, which is anybody from any generation who cares about the Arctic and cares about the global commons and cares about the impact that it's having can sign up and become an Arctic ice defender and to use that acronym to come to the aid of the Arctic. <laughs> so we're, we're, you know, we are broadening that campaign to bring this bottom-up policy pressure because we've seen how effective that can be when you know, the global youth climate movement has held feet to fire and we want to do the same for the Arctic. That's wonderful. Now, in recent years, youth from around the globe have united in demanding leaders go beyond nice words and photo ops and instead listen to the best science and take urgent, concrete action on climate change. Today's youth and future generations will suffer the consequences of our climate inaction. And given that it's their futures at stake, how can the youth gain more of a voice in these discussions? And what do you think are the steps necessary to ensure intergenerational equity? Well, I think this is what we're trying to do, is to provide 
platforms for voices to be heard by the people who need to hear them most. So as I mentioned, NATO and COP and Davos and where the policymakers gather. How do they gain more? I think it's, again, giving them, equipping them with the facts and also giving them confidence and helping them understand the pathways to being heard because quite quickly policymakers switch off if they feel they're being attacked. So I think it's more about, and quite rightly, I'm not saying you don't have to present the facts, but how to turn our anger and frustration into supportive, creative solutions, using that energy. And the other piece I think that is really important is that we can now also mobilize these youth voices who have just been incredible. I mean, there's no question that it's held feet to fire and accelerated the whole climate debate. But can we use those same voices to focus on specific things and get specific outcomes like the Arctic? where we start modeling how that voice moves through into policymaking. So I think that's really important, and we're beginning to see that too on the Amazon and Indigenous voices. I mean, the absolute horror of how many Indigenous are being killed or displaced by commercial activity. And you know, the sheer volume of people now who are willing to stand up is huge. And so you Delivering that message as a collective, I think, is, is really, really important. And I think we, this might be slightly controversial, but I also think we need to, and this is what we're trying to do at Global Choices, is to be more of a bridge. So we need to bridge the voices of my generation and older generations and not just create this polarization, oh, you're the baddies, you've created all the problems, we have the solutions. Because there are many, 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 many people on whose shoulders this generation, the new generation stand and who have fought for climate for years and years and years. And for whatever reason, their voices didn't get heard either and they were just as frustrated. So it's not a blame game, I don't think, here. We have to call out. We have to be factual. We have to bridge, but we also have to bridge with solutions, which I think is terribly, terribly important. And I think, yes, of course, there is a lot of greenwashing going on. And, you know, we're just finding our way through this transition. But at the same time, we need to encourage and we need to hold a vision that is a collaborative, collective vision for the future. And that requires all of us to get there. And of course, part of that is going back to the original wisdom of the Indigenous. Indigenous knowledge is so essential, especially in the climate realm. Now, Stockholm 50 is quickly approaching. Can you share your thoughts on the Declaration on Our Common Future and how it could potentially help safeguard the Arctic? Yes, it is. And it, it, is a, it is a landmark. I mean, I had the great pleasure of working for Gru Brundtland. Um, and when you think it was 1987 when she wrote you know, Our Common Home and the Brundtland Report. So it's very timely that we have this review. And I do think that the notion of needing a declaration around our common home, which basically encompasses so much of what we've just been talking about as global commons and about as global choices. It is about involving and seeing the global citizen as part of the solution and having a real interest in what the outcomes are. Um, the policy making can't be made at a remove. 
And we need to foster that global citizenship. We also need this green recovery, which actually, I think, interestingly enough, I'm very optimistic about. I think there is a lot more green recovery than we imagine. And in a way, it's not being driven by policy. It's actually being driven by the financial sector itself because the writing is on the wall. And that we need to have alternatives because we have to cut our dependency on oil and gas. And of course, we're in a massive blip at the moment with the Ukraine war. But I think it's very interesting that it's driving a whole new set of thinking around how do we change our dependency. So I think in the short term, of course, we've got this massive spike, which is terrifying. But in the longer run, I think we are going to see it will have driven much more investment in alternatives. And the financial system itself, I think, is doing an awful lot of that. A lot of the policy work on the TCFD, which is, of course, the central bank's work that they've done on the environment, and Mark Carney led that, has been and is fundamental, and I think will continue to push markets into investing in the right things. And that declaration really encourages that. And a universal framework which is systems, which is exactly what we're doing. You know, let's understand these massive systems, the lungs of our planet being the Amazon, the thermostats being the poles. We have to see these as great systems and we need to find a way to govern them that is in the common interest. And where do we see that in the Arctic? I mean, it's something we're pushing for, is we're pushing for governance that goes beyond what has been a very good model, which is the contiguous states. But as I said, you know, someone in Samoa is going to be more, the Marshall Islands going to be more affected than somebody in the contiguous states. So we need to look at inclusion in governance and we need to look at, you know, what are the legal frameworks for governance that actually use this global commons as its parameters. And that's, I think, is very hopeful. I, I do think at least it's in the conversation. It might be a very long time in the coming, but it means we can do it. And in terms of the Arctic, we believe we could model this all using the Arctic for a number of reasons. One is that it's an area beyond national jurisdiction, so it's a little easier, but also that it's so critical. You know, we've got the idea some scientists are saying is that, you know, within maybe as early as 2030, we might have ice-free Arctic summers. And that is seriously scary. So hopefully this can be a spur to encourage this more holistic view and that is more inclusive and really honors global citizens as well. Thank you. Before we go, is there anything else you would like to share with our audience? Just hugely encouraged that we have these wonderful podcasts. We would happily share our links. Um, please get in touch. We're absolutely thrilled to have any support that you can offer, your skills, whether that be in social media or design. And we're very much about collaboration. So thank you for listening even. And thank you so much for even creating these podcasts because this is how we get the word out. Thank you, Inga. All right, and there you have it. The Arctic and Antarctic are indispensable cooling systems for the whole planet and are now warming about three times faster than anywhere else. Some scientists are saying that as early as 2030, we might have ice-free Arctic summers. The central Arctic Ocean should be considered a global common, just like the atmosphere, Antarctica, or the high seas. It is too important to lose and the Arctic sea ice cannot be recovered. Once it's gone, it's gone. With Stockholm 50 approaching, it is time for a declaration to safeguard our heritage, our common home. 
The Declaration for Our Common Future has the potential to catalyze the actions necessary to combat the climate crisis in a way that is fair and inclusive. That is all for today, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Common Home Conversations Pathway to 2022. Please subscribe, share, and be sure to tune in next time to continue the conversation. And visit us at www.theplanetarypress.com for more episodes and the latest news in sustainability, climate change, and the environment.